Welcome to First Up, it is Rapa, that's Wednesday, the 20th of July. Cornathan Rarere Aho coming up today. Auckland's Mayor Phil Goff discusses the pedestrianisation of the city centre. Will it become a no-go zone for cars? Probably, that's in the wording, isn't it? Uh, if you've gotten out of the habit of wearing your mask, best get back in. A virologist tells us about the BA 2.75 variant detected in the community yesterday. And we bring you the story of a nurse practitioner who started up a clinic in an isolated rural school so residents can get the treatment they need. I'm hoping it'll be a forever thing because it's something that this community needs and if we run it to their needs and their wants, it will be there forever. Yeah, kia ora koutou. Welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere. London's on fire uh, and huge amounts of floodings in, uh, flooding in the South Island too. So uh, all our very best to you there and hopefully uh, you've managed uh, to get through okay. But we begin this morning as we do every Wednesday across the ditch in Australia where more than 5,000 people are now in hospital with COVID-19 and employers are being urged to allow people to work from home once again. And joining me from Brizzy is our correspondent Pam Corkery with the latest. Morena, Pam. Morena. Tell me, tell me about this. These waves are happening around the world, right? Um, well, we just spoke to our correspondent in Japan yesterday. Said that 110,000 cases. Uh, what well, I think two days ago. How badly smashed is Aussie getting at the moment? Well, flat as a shoelace, really. That's my medical term. Um, there were around 300 cases reported over the last seven days here, and that will be heaps of people who aren't, you know, involved who aren't reporting. They reckon it's double that. And 8,500 medical staff across just four states are in isolation. So it's pretty darn grim. Everywhere you go, say on shop and cafe windows, windows, it says, please be patient, only one worker on deck. Now, the Health Minister, Mark Butler, gave a straightforward address yesterday evening, and he said, you know, masks are good, but there's no talk of enforcing mask wearing. I kind of understand that the people are over it. I'm not seeing a mask anywhere. Yeah, and that's, look, we're going to be speaking to a virologist later in the show, everybody. Um, I think you might want to bring your masks back after hearing what it does. Um, you know, it's always interesting to find out what people do once they lose their job. Uh, former Prime <laughs> Minister Scott Morrison says losing the election was actually God's plan for him. So, yes, we didn't know that. No, um, why has he been in Perth? What's he been saying? Well, he appeared before churchgoers. That's the only two speeches he's made in churches. Um, you know, he choked back tears at the first one, the Horizon Church in South Sydney. This time it was the church in Perth founded and operated by tennis great and anti-marriage, gay marriage campaigner Margaret Court. So, so this speech is, I would say, he's obviously looking for a new job. He gave a 50-minute sermon including the insight that his failure was God's plan. It was a good thing that happened, that rising rates of mental illness in Australia is in most cases people giving in to Satan's plan and declaring if you had faith in God's plan, you didn't need to worry. Okay. I didn't realise okay. they're trying to outplan each other, aren't they? Yeah. 
they would seem to, and Scott Morrison, one commentator, a religious one, said he's once again free to be himself, praise the Lord, said with the joke, with dog whistle pandering to UN conspiracies because he laughed about the UN then theorists and all of that. He's just gone right over to the other side. I hope we never speak of him again. Well, you know what, maybe he is headed, trying to head for his career because we see these um, electric guitar churches around the world and those people up the front, they get money biffed at them by good people uh, who want some connections somewhere and they're taking advantage of it. They've got planes. They've got their own planes. Yeah, he knows more about a fast buck than a slow dough. Honestly, he really (laughs) likes his money. (laughs) Hey, um, now, Australians, though, you say he likes his money. Aussies love a winner. Tell me about this week's champ, Cameron Uh, Smith, the, the golfer. Cam Smith, and it's the first one to win the, or only the second one ever to win the British Open. Um, he's 28 years old. He's a maverick. He's got a mullet. Um, he was swigging out of the British Open trophy. He partied to in excess and cold chisel. He's that kind of dude. His caddy said from the moment he met him eight years ago, I knew he was different gravy. Um, now, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm more intrigued too is there's Donald Trump's message of congratulations to Smith. This is part of his campaign for golfers to take the money and sign with, or some will say defect, to the controversial Saudi-backed Live Golf Tournament, which is being run by Greg Norman. Yes, I've seen yeah. that massive amounts. Are they going to get Charles Barclay to be a commentator on it as well, apparently? Oh, God. He doesn't even play well, golf. Yeah. Smith was asked about the Live Tournament, um, and he said, this is just one last bond mo from him, he, he said, I just won the British Open, guys, and you're asking me about that. I think that's pretty not that good. (laughs) Well well done to him. And uh, let's move it because Australia still stays with loving its winners from the human world to the animal world. Tell me about Matty Starkoff. I love this guy. Sending pigeons to race internationally is a dream come true for Matty. He lives in a small town in Queensland. After 20 years, two pigeons he bred are going to represent Australia in an international pigeon racing event in Thailand. They're called Lady Luck and Augustus. They'll race against more than 8,000 pigeons from almost 50 countries. $2.6 million prize pool. It's high-wire stuff, honestly. Most of the birds I found out are followers. So if a bird goes off in the wrong direction, about 100 might follow it. But the last thing, just a last word from Matty, he said, Thailand's just the beginning of my grand plan. I want to be in the Australian Pigeon Journal. It's the legacy I want to leave behind. Yeah, the old... The old APJ, it's the one they all want to be a part of, Pam. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. There she is in Brisbane. Uh, She's about to go put her mask on now. Pam Corkery there. Uh, In my former life as a sports uh, radio person, the most fascinating interview I did was with a former cricketer, a legend, who races pigeons. And it was wonderful. I found out about the million-dollar race uh, in in South Africa. We should talk about it sometime. Um, but we can't run out because I've got to tell you about this. A surge of fires across London. And that's seen the fire brigade declare a major incident in the British capital. They've warned residents not to have barbecues or bonfires as temperatures reach record highs. Oh, no, I bet that's New Zealanders. Please don't be New Zealanders. The BBC's Gareth Barlow has this report. It's weather never seen before in the UK. For the first time in history, the mercury here at Heathrow passing 40 degrees Celsius. As the sun rose, each hour a new high. 
The day began for some with an early dip after the warmest night on record, trying to keep cool ahead of further dangerously hot weather. We're all at risk here with this heat, so you shouldn't go out during the middle of the day. The temperatures are really going to be extreme, but there are obviously going to be people who are more vulnerable. I was speaking to somebody here who has heart failure. Those who have chronic health conditions are going to be more at risk. The elderly, the very young, all of these people may struggle to regulate their hydration more. Today's extreme forecast follows yesterday's record-breaking temperatures. For Wales, the hottest day in history. For Northern Ireland and Scotland, their warmest day of the year so far. The temptation to stay cool has sadly proved deadly. At least four people are known to have died after entering rivers and reservoirs. As while the sun may be scorching, Britain's waters remain dangerously cold. If you get into trouble or out of your depth, uh, float on your back a bit like a starfish and um, until you've kind of remain, uh, regained control of your breathing um, and then you can either signal for assistance from the lifeguards um, or, or swim uh, to the safety. The weather has wrought disruption to schools, services and travel, with roads melting and railway tracks topping a record 62 degrees. Scientists warn there's no good news associated with our changing climate, especially for the most vulnerable in society. A lot of the people we come across as well have, have taken substances or are drinking alcohol. And if you think about drinking alcohol in this heat, having no access to water when they're on the streets, like the fountains aren't working at the minute. Um, you know, they need access to water. Although the advice is to hide from the heat, for many of us there's no choice but to brave the heat wave and head out to work to make sure society still functions despite us sweltering. From London to Leeds, Stourport to Spalding, the Met Office's extreme heat warning stretches across England for a second day. Our aisles now endure a changing climate, one far hotter than we've seen before. That was Gareth Barlow in London. It's quarter past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. We go to the Middle East now where Russia's President Putin is in Iran for only his second international trip since his invasion of Ukraine in February. Uh, joining the programme in Doha is Alex Beard. Morena, Alex, how are you? Morena, Nathan. Well, interestingly enough, I think on the rare occasion it was actually hotter in London today than it was in Doha. So there's wow. a strange fact of fate for you. Okay, here we are. So we're crossing live to chilly old Doha, brr, uh, <laughs> wrapped up in one of those big, uh, one of those big blankets with the tiger print. Yeah, with the tiger print on it is Alex Beard. Alex, can you just tell us why is is Putin in Iran? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. This is the only the second foreign trip that Vladimir Putin has made outside of Russia since the beginning of the Ukraine war, and only the first trip he's made outside of the former Soviet Union. So I think you have to kind of imagine it in this frame of reference, that Putin doesn't have many international friends anymore. And of his international friends, not many of them have that much clout or power in the wider world. And Iran is one of those which has quite a lot of clout on the international stage. So Putin is now in Iran. He's been meeting with the leaders there. He's been... Um, interestingly, actually, making some some kind of some kind of headway on the international stage because Turkey um, has joined him there, and they're going to have a a trilateral meeting about the war in Syria. But what I find quite interesting about this is that you might assume they all kind of align, but Iran is competing with 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 Russia in terms of an energy standpoint. 
Turkey is in this unusual position where in Syria it's fighting against Russian allied forces. Um, and then you've got Turkish military equipment that's actually being used in the Ukraine war against Russia. So it's a really interesting trip, this one. I think um, Putin is hoping to kind of deeply entrench those friendships, those few friendships that he has. He's apparently um, made a bit of an agreement around gas and oil between um, between Iran and, and Russia. And you could be seeing some other agreements on the horizon. So I think it'll be quite interesting um, to see what comes out of this this meeting of an unusual group of leaders. It is. That is strange. It, it sounds like the end of one of those, was it Reservoir Dogs, where everyone's just standing around trying to point the gun at each other and they're not quite <laughs> sure. Tell me about this. This is horrible. Day of violence in mm-hmm. Sudan. Uh, 79 people dead, 150 injured. Why is there, what's the reason for the fighting there? Yeah, so this is intertribal violence, really, in Sudan. 79 people dead, as you said. So it all started around issues around farming rights, and it's caused a rift that already existed between true two tribal groups to deepen any further. And I think it's really important to view this in, in the knowledge that Sudan at the moment is in a very tenuous position. The military took over last year from the democratically elected government. And in terms of security, it's a pretty haphazard environment to be in at the moment. And this is in the Blue Nile state. For those of you, you know, who know about the Nile through Egypt, this is one of the sources of the Nile. And uh, this has led to that these tensions between these two tribes has led to violence in a number of cities across Sudan. Um, a number of leaders saying, you know, we need to pull our heads in and, and we need to stop this because real people are dying. Um, on the other hand, you have thousands of people marching um, for various rights on both sides. And I just, I, I sadly don't think you're going to see a downturn in violence on this because, as I said, Sudan, in terms of security, it's in a pretty nasty position at the moment. Yeah. Um, we've, we know about the wildfires happening in Europe, and I understand Morocco is dealing with the heat as well. Yeah, so 6,600 hectares of remote uh, mountainous areas of, of Morocco have burned through. Um, you're also looking at around 20 fairly remote villages, though, in Morocco that have been completely evacuated. Morocco, as we know, is pretty close to Spain, and Spain has been, um, until now, really bearing the brunt of those forest fires that have been brought on by that heat wave that's now surging up through the UK. Um, interestingly, though, in this part of the world at the moment, you have an, a, a beginning a few days ago of a period known as the poison winds, and that lasts for two weeks. Basically, you have those monsoon winds, those monsoon winds that most would, people would know as bringing rain here, brings very dry, hot air and leads to the highest temperatures that you see in the season. So you're seeing a heat wave in Europe, you're seeing is this concept of poison winds and the Arabian, Arabian Peninsula and Morocco is there stuck in the middle. Yeah. Uh, Alex, thank you very much for your time in Chile Old Doha. There he is. It's Alex Beard. It's much harder to get out than it should have been. Uh, 20 past five, I'm Nathan Rarity, and you are listening to First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, we're going to speak to a virologist who explains the dangers posed by the new BA 2.75 COVID mutation. And very soon, we're talking huge houses and stuffed possums. It's the 20th of July, so it's happy birthday to Kim Carnes. 
Yes, the We Are The World soloist was born on this day in 1945. Uh, if a gargantuan Tuscan mansion is your bag, you'll want to check out this morning's featured South Auckland property on Trade Me. But first, the closure of Napier's Opossum World Museum means stuffed possums galore. Producer Jeremy Parkinson talked with Trade Me's Millie Sylvester about the museum's beloved singing Possum Road mural. You know, we see the weird and the wonderful, but this is just one listing that makes you really stop in your tracks. So possum lovers can take home a, a slice of Kiwi history with some of the fairy critters that were part of the iconic opossum world in Napier. So unfortunately, it got hit really hard with COVID, like so many businesses, and they have decided to close their doors. But hey, you know, you could benefit from this. So this is just such an incredible piece of, I guess you could call it a piece of art. It has five possums uh, sitting on the top of a bright red mini and they are singing from a song sheet. And it's just the most incredible piece of, I guess, taxidermy and art kind of amalgamated together. I mean, it could be yours. Now, there's been a lot of activity on this particular listing. The current bid is 2000 $610 and it's just seen so many questions and answers and 25,000 views so far so a very interesting piece of art that perhaps could fit in your man or man or woman cave. I don't really know what else you would do with this but um, it is definitely going to get some people talking if they come around to your house and see this. Yeah, you say COVID-19 got the museum, but, you know, bovine tuberculosis was probably always a risk as well um, with the possums. I'd never heard of it. I'd I'd heard of, you know, a lot of Napier tourist attractions, but this one has been going 50 years. That's just such a shame to see it go, if that's the case. It is. And, you know, I think they, they relied a lot on tourism. And unfortunately, with the borders closed, that did take a toll. So, Hopefully we can um, we can help them get a little bit more money by selling off these items to help them out. And it'll be interesting to see who takes this one home and who knows where this ends up. You might see it in a, in a little town near you. Oh, well, we were watching out for that one. Uh, to this week's fundraiser, this is an ultimate uh, luxury escape for two. It's raising money to restore an ex-RNZAF uh, Harvard. It is so a wonderful experience for two. I mean, this is this is a luxury escape if you've ever heard one. So those who may be familiar with Fotokoho Estate, which is in the Wairarapa and just the most magnificent property that you, that you could, well, hotel that you could go and stay at. It's right on the cliff. It's this incredible place where they have an incredible chef, some amazing food. You'll get a helicopter ride that will take you to Palliser Estate Winery for lunch in Martinborough. Then you'll be returned. You get to drive some amazing vehicles from Gaisley Motors. And so it's for two people for two days. And the whole total value of this package exceeds $5,000. So a very, very cool experience, like a one in a lifetime sort of experience here and just raising funds for a very, very cool cause. And our property this week. Now, this is a uh, property in the South Auckland suburb of Karaka. It's uh, an Italian country villa, uh, which is always interesting to me that people want to build Italian country villas in the middle of rural South Auckland. But tell, tell us about this. This is a, a pretty impressive property nonetheless. 
I think a lot of Kiwis will probably relate when I say that there is a lot of social media about this incredible Euro summer that people are having um, while we're stuck in the depths of winter. And this property popped up and it, it looks like something straight out of a Lonely Planet book about Tuscany. Like it's an incredible property. So it's got vines climbing up the walls of the property. It's got the that kind of clay colour to the exterior that just is, you know, so typical of, of that area. So it's amazing that this is actually in Auckland. When you sort of have a look at the bird's eye view of the of the property as well, you know, it's got the beautiful long lap pool which looks like sort of a cabana next to it and the beautifully manicured gardens that are, you know, so true of, of everything that you see in Italy. So it's a five bedroom, four bathroom house, just a little one here at 600 metres squared and it's and a very interesting entrance to it with these big tall stone fence and this double entry gate to make it just this really grand unveiling of this Tuscan villa in the middle of Auckland. You know, I think we're getting to that point in the uh, in the real estate cycle where people start going, actually, this is how much I want because I really have to sell it. Any idea of how much it will be going for? This one is priced by negotiation, which I think we we are seeing a little bit more of um, as the property market starts to cool. So no indication there, but it will be interesting to see because, I mean, to me, this is definitely a mansion, but it would be very interesting to see who ends up buying this and at what price. It's It's a buyer's market, so who knows? That's Trade Me's Millie Sylvester. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Yeah, 20th of July is what we've called this, going way back in time. Luckily, far enough back that we can go back to 356 BC. Happy birthday, Alexander the Great. No, not the current UFC champion. Other one. Um, Killed a lot of people. He uh, would have been 2,377 years old today. That's quite a cake to uh, blow out the candles on. Born this day, 103 years ago, Sir Edmund Hillary. Uh, Also uh, born uh, and unfortunately left us in 2020. She died. Diana Rigg was born on this day in 1938. Um, Loved her as Emma Peel, which is my reason for getting up watching Saturday morning telly. Uh, Also uh, with us no longer, uh, born on this day in 1943, Chris Amon. Um, born in 1945, 77 years ago, Kim Carnes. Yeah, there she is, that great, just that solo uh, that she really dominated We Are The World with. Um, uh, someone, gosh, it's a big day for people that we've lost actually on planet Earth. Chris Cornell, beautiful voice, was, voice, was born on this day in 1964. Giselle Bunchton, uh, she turns 42 years old today. If you've been around the Rotorua region going, that dude's tall, he is. His name's Stephen Adams. He's back at home. He is 29 years old today. And I saw someone on LinkedIn very happy that he returned his tray at the airport. Uh, very quickly, have a look at some happenings on the Arts and Culture desk. The movie Clueless came out in 1995 on this. Day. In 1968, at Chicago Soldier Field, the first ever Special Olympics uh, began, with some 1,000 athletes involved in that. And in 1969, on this day, Apollo 11 lunar module carrying Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin lands on the surface of the moon. And that's where me and my friends uh, got the uh, the saying to Michael Collins, which was when you know when you have to drop your friend off but you haven't got a park, so one of you has to drive round and round and round the block. You are Michael Collins remaining in the uh, orbiter on the lunar module. And that is a happenings on. On this day, the 20th of July. It's business. 
That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. Giles Beckford is with us because it is business time. Kia ora, Giles. Kia ora to you, Nathan. Now, I see these four words in front of me and I go, whoa, what is spectacular company board implosion? Oh, there's nothing like a falling out in the boardroom and there's a real doozy of one in the company called New Zealand Automotive Investments. That'll mean nothing to most people, except if I say they run the two cheap cars, uh, used car operation through the country. Um, Quite a a reasonable turnover there in in business. But yesterday, four directors uh, on the board handed in their notice, uh, citing irreconcilable differences with the major shareholder, a man called David Seller, who's also the uh, member of the board. Uh, They said that they couldn't work together, that they tried to find common ground. They had disagreements over the way the the company was being run. Uh, And all in all, it all sounded quite dysfunctional. So I rang up Mr. Senner and I said, good morning to you, Mr. Senner. Hmm. What's going on here? And he says, I'd like to have a chat with you. Send me your questions in an email. So I sent him off a pile of questions. He came back to me. A few hours later, and he says, the problem is that the board just can't get its act together, and I need some competent people who can actually work out a strategy to make the company grow and make the most of the market opportunities that are out there. And this board just doesn't cut it. He was going to move a motion, and he owns 60% of the company, so you figure he was going to win at the annual meeting next month. He was going to move a motion to dump three, uh, three of the directors from the board. Oh, okay. Uh, and he'd lined up three people to replace them. So it's one doozy of uh, a fallout on the board. You wonder how long it's been going on. Uh, and I sus- suspect because the chief executive who'd been there only a couple of years, he rather abruptly uh, resigned earlier this month and is leaving in September. So there are clearly some issues, I think is the term, isn't it, uh, in the boardroom of NZ Automotive Investments. I sometimes wonder how many more companies have issues, but they just manage to cover them up uh, and paper over the cracks. But this one's blown up quite uh, succinctly and quite quite uh, broadly, uh, quite openly. Mm. Um, and it's had a, a you know, relevant effect on the share price, which, um, shall we say, hit the brick wall yesterday on, on the result of this and the toing and froing between them. So we'll wait and see what happens on this one. There's an annual meeting, as I say, at the end of next month. No doubt a new board installed. But um, for the time being, one to watch just for a bit of, I don't know, ghoulish yeah, fun. Yeah, for a bit of, bit of watch now. I just had a look at the share price here down, what is it, 27.69%. You Oof. have to say, that's a bit of a tumble, isn't it? That is a bit of a tumble. <laughs> one day. Oh, dear. Where's the, oh, the car's gone off the cliff. And, <laughs> and so's the company share price. Yeah. Giles, thank you very much for your time, sir. You can, you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 at 10 to 7. Well, uh, it is 25 to 6 if you're listening live to us here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rada. Remember too, you can listen anytime at your convenience. Just download the podcast. Very easy to find. 
Very con- convenient. Take it with you. A wadded up a nurse practitioner has started a clinic from a school uh, school principal's office in the little town of Pirinoa. Up until now, residents of Pirinoa and surrounding isolated settlements have had to drive for up to an hour to get medical treatment in Featherston. Concerned that some people weren't getting the care that they needed due to the distance and the spiralling cost of petrol, Karina Ngatai decided something needed to be done. So she approached the local school which agreed to help, and now the whole community is on board. So I asked Karina why this clinic is so important. It's only in the principal's office for for the school holidays, but prior to this, there's been a lot of planning and communicating with the community and getting them on board to have their own clinic out there. It's to reduce any barriers of travelling, people that, you know, farm, you know, a large farming region. It's quite a huge isolated rural area. So anyone could be travelling up to an hour to 45 minutes to get into a doctor's. And, you know, some people don't have transport that are out there. And a lot of people don't seek medical care because it's too far to travel. Yeah. Or they get hoha or they think, Oh no, I'll be all right. The distance of it, did you did you choose the school in particular because it's like the nearest to you or you thought to yourself that's actually the best sort of geographic location considering the people around here and how far they have to travel? It's like a central um hub for that area hmm. because it's quite it's a greater region, Pirinoa sits right smack bang in the middle pretty much, so it's equal distance for you know, most people and like a lot of people coming from Ngawi or Ōniki have got to travel through Pirinoa and anyone that's coming in from town back to Pirinoa have got to come through that way as well. This is amazing what you're doing, and it's obviously a huge level of care that you've got that, um, you know, has has seen you put this up. Are you finding, though, that there still aren't people that can make it to you? At this stage, because last week week was our first clinic that we held, Hmm. just to get things up and rolling before we move into the dental clinic, which is getting refurbished uh, fit for purpose. So if, if there's anyone that's too unwell to make it into the clinic, at the end of my session, I will block time off and, and I can go out to them at home. Oh, that's amazing. Do, do you have any funding that's helping you from local or national health authorities? No. Oh, we've got to not, change that. <laughs> not, not yet anyway. Not yet anyway. I've been doing some negotiating and talking with DHB and others in regards to funding but um, at the moment the community is putting a lot of money up to help fund the refurbishment of the building. We've got community members who's our qualified builder, the electrician and a gentleman who's laying the flooring and just the local people generally in that region are just so excited about this happening that they're giving it their all, they're doing as much as they possibly can and a lot of our older community people who are involved in rotary and stuff like that are, are trying to get 
funding to help as well. Excellent, that's great. What, what did the school say when you came to them and said, hey, I think this would be a good place? Well, one of the mums from the school, she had brought her, her daughter into the clinic and, and into the into Featherston Medical, hmm. and I mentioned it to her that I'd like to start a clinic up out there, and she is on the Board of Trustees for the school. So she had sort of mentioned it, and then I popped out there and had a all with the principal at the time, and that was at the end of the first term. She then presented it to the Board of Trustees, who said, yeah, let's do it. So we signed an agreement, and from there, it's just everything's just falling into place quite nicely. Well, that's fantastic. So I know that you said that you're in the principal's office and that you're, I think you're just there temporarily while they're um, trying to outfit the the old dental clinic there. Gosh, I remember when the dental nurse used to come around, I used to be really good at sliding down my seat, hoping that she couldn't see me through the little <laughs> little window there in the door. <laughs> so this is yeah. a lot nicer. Eh? So tell me that when you move to the old dental clinic, are you, is it temporary or are you hoping for longer term? No, I'm hoping it'll be a, a forever thing. Because it's something that this community needs, and if we run it how the community need to their needs and their wants, it will be there forever. And like, there's going to be a wall that because these whānau that have been putting donations in, so their names will go on that wall. And you know, I'm hoping in many years down the track that someone will walk in there and go. Oh, that's my nanny in Koro, or that's, you know, this is my family here. You know, they they helped get this clinic up and running. Yeah, and, and I guess, too, for you to be able to get it up and running, I mean, right now, winter flu, I know there's a lot of COVID about just at the moment, too, and other ailments. I mean, it's, it makes it really important that people can access care at the moment, eh? Well, yeah, it is, and it's and being at the school, we can help with education around anxiety and other things with the with the tamariki and doing sessions with the teachers as well. Because there's both there's two schools out there. Between the two of them, there's about two hundred children. So I'll be working closely with the kuras out there and. And I'll also have uh, social services, AOD, other services connected to me, which is really, really exciting because those social services are really important to health. It's not just the medical side of things. That's wired up a nurse practitioner, Karina Ngatai. 1826, I'm Nathan Rarere, you're listening to First Up on RNZ National. So between now and six, Mayor Phil Goff on the pedestrianisation of Auckland CBD. Uh, we talked to a leading virologist as well about BA 2.75. You are really going to want to hear this one. <laughs> The professionals of RNZ of the Morning Report team, they are here after six, telling us what they're working on today. It's a very good morning to Kim Hill. Kia ora, how are you? Kia ora, I'm very well, how are you? I'm very good, it's good to hear your voice again, what's happening? Oh, all hell's broken loose, of course, we're going to hell in a handbasket, Nathan. <laughs> yes, we are. Europe's on fire and uh, the UK is desperately trying to keep cool. Why are there so many guns? Oh, we're flooding here, of course, we'll check up on the latest from... 
the South Island mainly and find out whether mm. Ashburton managed to uh, to stay dry. Um, we'll find out how many how many guns do we know? How many guns there are in New Zealand? Well, no idea really, because only firearms um, owners are licensed and not the guns, of course. So who yes. knows how many guns are out there? And there do seem to be, between you and me, one or two too many guns. Too many rounds. Yeah. Plus, you know, talking about hell in a handbasket, we have the All Blacks. David Moffat. <laughs> Don't former, be mean. Ah, former chief executive of New Zealand Rugby uh, is joining us to talk about what's gone wrong. Of course, everybody has an opinion on that. No doubt you do too. What do you think, Nathan? Oh, I think um, I think that uh, some recent sponsors paid a lot of money to be involved with excellence, and that does not look like excellent excellence. That's what I think. Well, I suspect that David Moffat would say, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but um, they should have done due diligence because it wasn't an overnight failure. No, no, not at all. Anyway, all that and more coming up. I've been fired by two people on that board. I know that they could, they've got it in them. Yeah, thank you. Oh, you <laughs> have. Yeah, I have. <laughs> that could be a record. Yeah, it could be. I was like, come on, you did that and so did you. You can, anyway. anyway. What were you doing? Ducking in the scrum or something? No, no. I was apparently one of them. I was too old for the show I was on and they replaced me with someone older. So there you go. Anyway, thank you. <laughs> I was just probably terrible. Thank you very much, Kim. Uh, Kim and Corey, up after six. Well, look, Auckland City just got a bit friendlier to pedestrians with the Merrill driving of Federal Street, now a tree-lined shared space that it's hoped will eventually form part of a green corridor in the CBD. The COVID pandemic has uh, led to a lack of office workers and therefore foot traffic around. Uh, So will these initiatives help revitalise what has been described as a ghost CBD? Joining us now is the Mayor of Auckland, it is Phil Goff. Kia ora Mayor, how are you? Uh, Tamariye, Nathan. I'm good, thanks. And I thought we'd better have some light good news after that (laughs) introduction by Kim um, about how bad the world is. Yeah, yeah, look, uh, it's it's one of the things that we've had as part of our uh, central city master plan. And not many people will know the southern area of Federal Street, because why would you? It was just a nondescript road with guttering, uh, packed to the gunnels with parked cars down the edge, traffic moving through it. And now you go to it and you've got this beautiful tree-lined laneway, still access for cars that need to um, park there or, or the service vehicles for the, some of the shops. Hmm. We've got mature native trees that are at least 10 years old that we've planted. Beautiful, you know, uh, thinking of London at the moment, shade for summer. We've got nine rain gardens replacing the guttering and that filters the stormwater so that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's cleaner water before it runs into the harbour. Uh, it's, it's beautifully paved, attractive paving, non-slip. It's got street furniture, seating. Uh, it's got l- extra lighting to increase safety. And now it's a place where you can linger, relax and enjoy. And, you know, yeah, is, is it uh, to attract people back into the city? Well, in part because this is part of a, a network of laneways and uh, linear parks that we're creating in Auckland. Um, but it's also for the increasing numbers of people there. This is very, really close to the city rail link new station at Aotea Square to, yeah. to Waihara 2 we're building. That's 21 storeys, so it's going to have a lot of residents in it. So, so um, Mayor, Mayor Phil, is, is this, because um, it, it's good there that you mentioned that you know there, there is vehicular access for deliveries and what have you, so there wouldn't be any other vehicles going through. I know some people go, oh, but if they can't park outside our shops, no one's going to come. What do you, what do you say to, to that answer, uh, to that well, question? 
Years ago, when we pedestrianised part of Fort Street, we had the same concerns expressed by the retailers at that point. And lo and behold, what happened when we pedestrianised that part of it, actually their custom went up. Because people, it's it's not fun walking down a narrow pavement with with a, a street jammed with cars and, and cars moving up and down at the normal road speed, you, you prefer actually to go to somewhere where you feel good, you, where you can enjoy the ambience of the place. I mean, this place in summer will be fantastic. I was talking to the, uh, one of the, um, the shop owners there and saying, look, you'll be able to put you know, tables, and, tables and chairs out in the pavement, give it a bit of a Parisian feel. Um, you know, uh, this is a place where people will want to come. And the feedback I got from the businesses that I talked to down there was, was extremely positive. Uh, we, we- they, they think this really lifted the area. Yeah, Phil, we have to be very fast because we're going to a virologist soon. Just very quick. Once the, you know, down the bottom of town there by the big commercial bay, I think that's where the subway is going to come up out of. Once that opens, can you just quickly tell me how far away is that from opening and what difference will that make? Well, the, the, the CRL um, will get the breakthrough of the second tunnel uh, end of September, but that probably won't open up until 2025. Uh, at the moment, you've got this, the, the old central post office, which is the new Britomart station. Uh, so they're going to be called the Waitamata station. Uh, and that's got scaffolding over it. That comes off uh, in a month or two, and that will look absolutely splendid. Oh, that's the one I was thinking And it'll be that. really good, yeah. Yeah, I was down there the other weekend with my daughters, and it was awesome. And uh, one of them said, oh, it's like being in a really big city overseas. Um, <laughs> not in that voice. Uh, she's got a much nicer voice than that, and she'll hate me if I did it that way. Um, right, so, um, uh, Mayor Phil, thank you very much for your time. It's the Mayor of Auckland, Phil Goff, there, talking about that uh, pedestrianisation. I don't think it's it's the evil thing that people think. If we have a look around our major cities in New Zealand, remember Manor's Mall was once Manor Street. Uh, I think Cuba was the same in all that as well. So, yeah, that's uh, what's happening in downtown Auckland. It's eight minutes to six, and the latest figures show, and please listen to this, there are over 10,000 new cases of COVID-19 so far, uh, 21 deaths actually, I think yesterday, wasn't it, or this week, uh, another sign of the current wave of COVID spreading, and spreading fast. Notably, two of these new cases reported are of the Omicron subvariant BA2.75, I think it's called, which was detected circulating in the community in Tamaki Makoto. This adds to the previous six cases of the strain found at the at the border. So joining us now to explain what this means is University of Otago evolutionary biologist and virologist Dr Gemma Geegan. Uh, Kia ora uh, uh, Gemma, how are you? Good morning, I'm good thank you. So can you tell us about this new sub-variant? Yeah, so over the past few weeks um, scientists from across the world have sort of noticed the emergence of of this new sub-variant, which was first detected in India probably around early June. And um, it's an offshoot of Omicron BA2. So that's what um, the variant that was dominant in New Zealand until quite recently. So in other words, it's a sort of second generation of BA2. So that means it includes all of the mutations that BA2 has, but it also has um, a worrying amount of new mutations, particularly um, concentrated in the spike protein. So what does what is that sort of mutation that the change in the little spikes that come off it does is it more dangerous or is it more is it, does it spread easier? Well, um, so 
In comparison to BA5, which had um, three new novel spike mutations, BA275 has um, eight, at least eight new spike mutations um, in comparison to BA2. And what the, these do is work to, one, they, they um, change the shape of that spike so that antibodies can no longer recognize it. That means that um, as a result, this subvariant may have increased ability to infect people who have already been yeah. infected. So that's escaping our um, immune protections that we've got. As well, some of the mutations act to increase the virus's ability to bind to our human receptor cells. So that means that they're more efficient at entering our cells and start starting to replicate. So these mutations sort of work together and um, and it's the constellation of mutations that really help the virus to um, provide that growth advantage over other variants. So, uh, Dr. Keegan, is mask-wearing, is it important that we get... I mean, if we, if we want to stay safe from this and we want to be the people that aren't accidentally spreading it around and stuff, where should we be with our masks? Are we still doing the sanitising the hands? Like, what, what's the advice for, for people that you have? Well, it's quite clear from even the start of this pandemic that this... Uh, virus is airborne and it's transmitted via um, mainly aerosol droplets and and, and aerosol particles. And so mask wearing um, and ventilation are are the two most important things that help stop the spread of the virus. Oh, okay. Um, So does, you know, this, we keep seeing new variants popping up quite often. This one here seems like it's, well, this is quite a dangerous one, isn't it? Well, we don't actually know how dangerous in terms of disease severity it is. So mm. there isn't yet enough data to suggest um, whether or not it's it's more or less severe than the other Omicron variants that we've had here. Um, and so, you know, the, over the coming weeks, that, that might become more apparent. However, um, I guess what's worrying about it is that it's increased, um, uh, it's now accounting for a lot of the proportion of genomes that are sequenced in India. But as well, it's now spread to at least 14 countries that have detected it in their genomic surveillance. So the r- rapid geographic spread of this new subvariant um, is particularly concerning. It might suggest it has a um, growth advantage over previous subvariants. But we don't really know how it might behave over, um, for example, BA5, which we now have dominant in New Zealand. You know, because I see a lot of people that they're not wearing masks and they think, oh, it's because I just had COVID recently, so I'm immune now, so this is all right. You know, at least for about six months, I won't need to wear one. Can you, if let's just say you got the one from two variants ago, does it make you immune to this current variant? Look, it it doesn't. um, This 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 BA two seventy five does have the ability to evade antibodies because of its um, number of mutations. And, and that's the case with BA5 as well, which is now dominant in New Zealand. And so the reinfections are going to become more common. Um, so, you know, past infections, but um, most importantly, um, vaccinations and boosters of the vaccination um, will give you protection. And they're really good at giving you protection against um, severe disease. However, they're probably not as great as protecting you from getting infected. Um, and so, you know, it is um, concerning that the, these new mutations have the ability to escape that protection.
So they're kind of like the Lance Armstrong ones they can get through. I mean, are there variants, do you think, around that we don't that we haven't heard of yet? Yeah, I mean, there are gaps in global sequencing efforts. So the only reason that we can detect these um, uh, new variants that are cropping up, and we will be peppered with variants as um, time goes on, um, and especially when we fully open the borders at the end of the month. But um, the only reason why we can detect them is because of you know ESR's ability to um, sequence the genomes of of a number of cases and do sort of population level surveillance as well, mm. you know looking at the wastewater surveillance too. And um, but internationally, you know there's global um, gaps in that, and um, the, there are certainly variants probably ticking along that we haven't um, yet detected. Oh, well then get your masks on. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Gemma Geegan there. That's the warning for you all. Um, someone here said it's lovely to start the day with um, laughing with Pam Corkery. There is a god. That's a Fado there in Island Bay. Morning Report is next with Kim and Corin from all of us here at First Up. Do have a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears. Ah, poor, poor.